You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. From humble beginnings to global conservation phenomenon, the rewilding movement continues to grow and thrive amid the greatest ecological challenges our planet has faced in 65 million years. Here's how you can join us and help return balance to nature. First, go to rewilding.org and subscribe to the Weekly Digest to keep up on the latest rewilding news, interviews, and art. Second, consider donating to support the Rewilding Institute's mission to rewild North America and beyond. And for extra credit, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help spread the word. Thanks so much for your support. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. This episode of the Rewilding Earth Podcast is sponsored by Biohabitats. Be sure to visit biohabitats.com and subscribe to Leaf Litter Newsletter to keep up on the important work being done to restore degraded ecosystems, conserve habitat, and regenerate natural systems that sustain all life on Earth. I'm your host, Jack Humphrey, and today I'm speaking with Chris Hawkins, leader of the Colorado chapter of Nature Conservancy's Cities Program, where he spends his time focusing on improving regional habitat connectivity and access to nature, creating a more equitable and climate-resilient urban forest, and ensuring there is funding and support for helping the region achieve more sustainable outcomes at the intersection of people and nature. One of the questions that would often come up as we started this role and as the work in cities really started full bore for the Nature Conservancy about 10 years ago was, why are we working in cities? I think for, uh, for many of our classic partners, donors, I think the concept of nature and cities was really in conflict. And uh, I think went against, in many ways, some of our classic work, which was really just protecting large landscapes and areas afield and fairly far from cities typically. And my response to that, and something I come back to frequently, is that our mission as the Nature Conservancy, TNC, is to conserve the lands and waters on which all life depends. And as we think about all life, um, a, a human population globally that is now living in more urban spaces than not, it certainly seems to me that we need to be thinking about where humans live, human development patterns, human resource consumption, how those interact with those large landscapes that we care deeply about, how they connect, and how we make cities thriving places for people and their connection to nature. The general concept, again, is that if we can get cities right and get human development patterns and resource consumption right, we're likely then to reduce things like greenhouse gas emissions. We're likely to encroach less on natural and undisturbed places, and we're more likely to figure out ways to connect people to nature in a way that's meaningful and deepens our appreciation for this global system. I think the way I love always looked at it is that the, all the resources out there are going into the cities. Everything comes from where TNC has traditionally worked and where we have traditionally worked. And, and that's where all the people are, right? The vast majority of people are in urban settings. So the consumption patterns and everything that happen in urban areas directly, completely and directly affect everything that's going on out in that more wild space. You really can't leave 
uh, built environments out of this because they have so much bearing on how the land is used or left alone and whether or not it's left alone based on the choices people are making in urban environments. I think that's exactly right. And I think some of the work that, that we've done here locally over the last few years has been in an organization that we call the Metro Denver Nature Alliance. So the Metro Denver Nature Alliance is a coalition of about 50 plus organizations. Many are environmental nonprofits. You have some of our academic partners in that space are kind of larger science institutions like our Botanic Gardens, Museum of Science. And really importantly, we have all of our county open space managers and parks and recreation uh, groups in that coalition. So that coalition, again, it's a loose coalition, and the goal is to both support the needs of nature and equitable access to nature. And I think, and one of the projects that we've engaged in, and we were privileged to partner with Biohabitats and their incredible staff and expertise on this, but we did a regional conservation assessment. So it's, a, it's an assessment, ecological assessment of the seven county metro region, and it crosses seven different jurisdiction, county jurisdictions, as well as many different watersheds, and it's about a 6,200 square mile area. What often happens in these kind of high level analyses, and I think then translates into the way that many people conceive of uh, the dichotomy or false dichotomy between nature, people, and maybe trichotomy, but cities, is that typically these assessments, they just gray out all of the urban and sometimes suburban areas. So if you're thinking geospatially, you can imagine the forests and grasslands and shrublands and waterways. And typically the urban areas are just a big blob of growth. And I think that's how a lot of people actually think about cities, right? They really think about them as a, just a giant concrete impediment where humans have transformed the lands and waters and where nature has been pushed out. Like sacrifice zones. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, you know, while those exercises might help prioritize and identify really core big habitat outside of cities, I think where we need to move and where some of this assessment and the Metro Denver Nature Alliance and many other kind of green fronting exercises as the term of art is in the space, is really thinking about our nature, the needs of nature, and how nature can support human needs, including equitable access to nature in urban areas and how that connects to our suburban and then more rural and wholly undeveloped spaces. We've done this regional conservation assessment. It has been incredibly valuable. We've started to share it publicly and the response, the responses we've gotten, especially because this crosses seven different county jurisdictions, has really allowed folks to start thinking regionally about the needs of nature and how that lines up ultimately with aspects of how we work across boundaries to connect key corridors, protect key habitat, and really start to align ourselves in a broader, more systemic way, which I think is how we're going to have to ultimately solve some of these challenges. And it's something we can't really ignore and gray out anymore. Nature doesn't gray things out. I'm so excited to hear about people's work in the urban areas because we can't keep graying them out and just thinking there's nothing that can be done there. I imagine it's a complex problem at times for you. It is tricky. I think as we start to get into urban spaces, especially ultra urban spaces, understanding the needs of nature, what is actually 
living in as resident wildlife and then what is passing through, what are their needs. I listened to the podcast you did with Chris Shred previously and even thinking about things like bird migration and glass and how we treat that in a way that allows them to pass through safely. I think these are all really key understandings. And I think we often tuck those away as nice to have while not thinking about the potential mutual benefits that we can derive if we really build nature and the needs of nature into our practices. And that includes in things like stormwater management or building design and aspects of the built environment that where you really can get a a good return on your investment that isn't just creating or investing solely in the needs of some pollinators, but has returned because if you put out planters with native species out front of your retail space, it might draw more people in, right? And so I think there's an opportunity in cities that is unique where because the there's some complexity in how you actually address challenges in cities, but because they have and serve so many diverse functions innately, they also create so many opportunities to provide benefit in so many different ways, right? Whereas, as you noted, an overpass might out in the hinterlands that crosses the highway might really only serve one primary function, maybe for a range of different species, but that's what it's built for, right? And so I think that is really the fun for me working in cities and previously working in city government, thinking about natural infrastructure. How do we design cities in a way that can serve many different functions, provide many different benefits in across all walks of life. Are people getting sufficiently sick of how sucky cities are to live in? There's a lot of things <laughs> that could improve for biodiversity if a lot of humans who I suspect are getting sick of all the concrete, all the ha- the need to drive everywhere, the huge roads that are overbuilt, overwide. Is there a groundswell that people are really getting <laughs> into this stuff? And what's progress? What's it look like to you? Yeah, great question. The built environment often feels like it is static. And it often feels, especially in ultra-urban areas, that it always was one way and that it is never going to change. And so I think that folks probably, I would say broadly, generally, don't maybe aren't sick of something because they also might not know an alternative. Because our, our built environment lasts often for hundred plus years, and we often don't. So I don't know if there's a groundswell yet. I think where I would point is that I think there, I'm seeing more and more every day, people in positions of decision-making honoring what they've seen come through, whether it's their uh, ballot box or whether it's through what folks are saying in Uh, publications or on social media, I'm seeing more reflection and more desire from those in positions of power to think about climate change and how we use natural systems and incorporate natural systems in a way that will ultimately make our cities more reinvigorating and more meaningful and better places to live ultimately for everyone. Yeah, thinking back, I've been in city government spent about seven years in city government. My role now is very much as a partner with those in city government. Worked for a while in New York City's 
drinking water, wastewater utility, the Department of Environmental Protection. There in New York City, we were faced with what's called managing our combined sewer. So that's where sanitary waste combines with the stormwater. And the way those sewers are designed are that when it rains heavily, those sewers overflow nearby waterways rather than backing up into people's homes. So when it rains a bunch, you get a lot of raw sewage, raw human sewage in the waterways. And that's a big deal. So cities that have that are typically under pressure from the Environmental Protection Agency to address that. One classic way that those are addressed is that those utilities will basically just build big tanks at the end, big tanks and tunnels at the end of their sewer system so that when they get that large volume of water, it instead of going into the waterway, it goes into those tanks and then they can treat those tanks after that an increase in, in water. We were able, and this is now widespread and through learning from many other cities, we were able to negotiate with the Environmental Protection Agency and Department of Justice and an opportunity for us to demonstrate green stormwater infrastructure, which is basically managing that stormwater and minimizing those peak flows by putting in things like rain gardens, green roofs, other permeable pavement, at the surface to capture that rainwater and divert it from getting into the sewers at the start. So an example of that are rain gardens. So these would be five by 10 foot rain gardens that would be on the curb line. And you would basically just break some of the concrete, which is already a great step, break some of the concrete, dig five by 10 by five to eight foot channel, effectively a structured pit, put some gravel in, put soil in, and then cut a two curb inlets, an inlet and an outlet. And so basically the stormwater that would land on the streets would then be diverted first into this rain garden. And if that rain garden gets saturated, it would simply come out of the outlet and then go back into the storm sewer. So I share that because, and all of the context, because what I think a lot of city managers are faced with are classic kinds of ways of dealing with environmental challenges and old systems. And it's hard sometimes to change that and to challenge the norm, especially using natural systems, which are just never systems that civil engineers are typically comfortable with. And what I would say is that my example in New York City is that we had to do a few things to really have systemic change. First, we had to make the case to the EPA and Department of Justice that this was viable. So we did some pilot projects in the city that was relatively easy. Then we modeled the stormwater impact and made the case. They said, yep, all right, you can go for it. It looks like this could work. Then we had to start to scale that up. And we did a few more pilots started to get our internally our engineers comfortable with these processes and then we had to overcome some of our internal interagency challenges right so again cities are complex we had to work with our department of planning our department of transportation mayor's office to start to understand how these systems could function and be compatible with things like broadband electricity parking requirements and ADA accessibility, all of these issues. And what we ended up doing was for about a year and a half, we worked with our partners across agencies who we really 
they were pretty reluctant to come to the table on creating a standard specification for rain gardens. And this standard specification, our goal was basically make these just a common piece of the palette for streets. And so that took a while. And I would say the first four to five years was very much building that case to our federal state regulators, building our case internally within our agency, building our case within the city, building those standard specs. That took a while and we didn't get a lot of rain gardens in at that point. And the kind of large transformational takeaway is that if you look now, it's New York City has a great green infrastructure map. In just the span of 10 years, we were able to now have, there are now more than 10,000 rain gardens in New York City. They have become standard infrastructure. Nature is at the table. There are now many more, much more pollinator habitat, trees, shrubs, places for, we've seen monarch butterflies come through. And there's also now a full workforce dedicated to maintaining these. The alternative to this was to build a big tank that would have taken probably just as long to build, would be underground and providing none of these extra benefits. And so I deeply honor and I think have learned a lot from those in those leadership positions who really push the norms to make this happen. And really long story short, getting back to your earlier question, this is how we get a groundswell, right? We get people to start to see these rain gardens to support and steward these rain gardens in their communities and really start to see how nature plays such an integral role in how cities function, they in turn receive that benefit of a much more beautiful place that provides them quality of life, mental health, all kinds of other benefits, shade. And then we can start to see how cities can be different, how they can serve our needs and our global resource and large landscape needs. And ultimately, ideally help make cities thriving places where people want to be and not the kind of, to your point, the cities that kind of suck, right? Yeah. <laughs> we want cities that really have that natural function and provide us that natural benefit. I think there's so much in that example that I come back to on a daily basis about what our role is in creating that groundswell making us think differently about the places we live and what we want them to be. They are not static. They can be incredible places where we have great diversity of people and of wildlife and meaning. Biohabitats is proud to sponsor this episode of the Rewilding Earth podcast during the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration. And always, Biohabitats applies the science of ecology to restore degraded ecosystems, conserve habitat, and regenerate the natural systems that sustain all life on Earth. Ecological restoration is positive action that you can take and support today. It's also incredibly rewarding and a lot of fun. Learn how you can get involved in the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration by exploring the links in extra credit. I rarely get to, in the weird little town in Indiana that I'm from, have a personal connection to something that a guest says that is also actually happening here because nothing happens here until it's happened practically <laughs> everywhere else. We're very slow to get the cool new stuff, the cool new toys, but we have those things here. And if you and TNC are part of making that happen and have that spread all the way to a little tiny town like this, 
then I would imagine there's some sort of saturation happening out there because of the fact that we never get anything cool until everybody else has had it. And I've seen those here in town. For us to do it, I almost feel like it has to be a mandate somewhere or a very strong recommendation federally or statewide that has been adopted because we wouldn't we don't typically do that stuff voluntarily around here. So congratulations to the work and any part that you and TNC have had to do had with having that spread across the country. Because if it's here, that's a very big deal. That's awesome. My wife always laughs because sometimes when it rains, I'll hop in the car and go drive out and watch <laughs> how some of these rain gardens are functioning. It's yeah. Pretty dorky. But they're so cool. And that's awesome to hear that's happening in Indiana that I think we are in a moment where the people who are in decision-making in for our cities can design our cities of the future, I think are becoming more empowered to be creative and have creative, natural aspects, a part of the palette that maybe previously wasn't, right? So I think if you're a stormwater engineer, let's say 25 years ago, what you had to manage stormwater in your city with typically curb cuts, sewers, grates, drains, right? Get that water out of the city and get it in a place where it can be treated. And I think we are just in a moment of creativity. So where the groundswell is, I think really is in some of those transportation, infrastructure, planning. And that's really fun because it's so inspiring to see so many people in municipal government and in the construction design spaces be able to bring what maybe not wasn't inspiring but maybe felt stale as a kind of space of professional as a career it can really start to bring some of that creativity and that's awesome to see because that really does have transformational impact and yeah to your point to see in the middle of indiana where you might not think that is happening to see that kind of creativity and innovation is awesome I'm struck by the number of times now that I've had a guest on working on things like you or doing the over and underpasses in high traffic areas. Someone from the Wildlands Project had been on last year and talked about how open the U.S. Department of Transportation was to their study results and then open to actually doing something about it in an overly bureaucratic situation where everybody really tries to stay or has had stayed very static and true to peer pressure from ancestors, people who develop things that are dead now, those old engineers Mm -hmm. that didn't understand the ecological impacts of the way they were designing urban environments and which are affecting all of our downstream areas. If you're a rewilder and you're listening to this and you have any water uh, in your area, it has passed through an urban environment somewhere in most cases, unless you're really out there and you're at the headwaters or something like that. But For a lot of us working on projects or concerned with certain areas, it's really vital that people get this stuff right. And it's really exciting to see that agencies, which you are trained to think are the most immovable objects in the whole system, the system itself, that I'm now getting more verification that there's more of that out there. I'm really, I'm almost excited to go see a meeting sometime with these folks, which is Traditionally, what I would think of is the most boring thing you could possibly ever do. But if they're doing stuff like this and talking about things like this, man, you could probably see more participation from people in the community, I would imagine, because now it's starting to sound interesting. 
I think that's exactly right. And one thing that I'm thinking about is just reflecting again to some of that time I spent in the water utility in New York City was we had a challenge in recruitment, right? So we could, we had simple service jobs that only really were able to pay out at a certain amount, depending upon your experience. And even if you were most experienced, you're still often not going to compete with the private sector, et cetera. And you don't get bonuses, all of the kind of rigidity and bureaucracy you'd expect. Our selling point, we had two. So one was somewhat unique to being in New York City in that we were able to sell the aspect of come out of college and you get to work on some of the largest, most storied and critical infrastructure in the country, right? So that was a big one, no doubt. The other was innovation, right? So if we think about what actually inspires people, it's not going back to the same palette. And if you're an architect, I think very few people go to architecture school to come out and put up McMansions, um, although I'm sure there's a really fascinating aspect of design and all that. But I think a lot of people come in with more creative, innovative inspiration and aspiration. And so I think that thinking about rewilding, introducing nature and the benefit of nature has really opened up and has brought in what I think are a new class younger, more creative, innovative class of people into uh, spaces like city government and utilities, et cetera, where there are big capital projects happening and where decisions are being made about how our future built environment looks, how it connects to wild spaces, how it ultimately helps us protect wild spaces. And so I think there's a, I think there is a growing Certainly a growing space for innovation there as well. Love to share in Denver. So the Nature Conservancy, we've been working closely with some partners to do something similar to the rain garden kind of concept I just shared. So one of the biggest challenges for urban trees, especially ultra urban trees, is soil volume, right? Trees and their ability to grow into old age, into full kind of mature canopy and to then ultimately provide their greatest potential return on investment and benefit in shade and in just their beauty and even some of the economic aspects, all of that is a function of soil volume. So they can't get enough root space. Um, They're just not going to grow into maturity and they'll die off earlier than much earlier, possibly at 30 years, let's say, rather than reaching that 70, 80 year lifespan. So that's a big challenge, big challenge in ultra urban areas. Most tree pits are about five feet by five feet, right? So 125 cubic feet in soil volume. And it's often a big challenge to change, right? Because cities are ultra urban areas, especially are very confined. You have a lot of, as I noted earlier, a lot of competing interests like broadband, sewer, electrical, et cetera. One of the ways that you can do that and something that we've been working on here in in Denver is by creating, using a technology called structural cells. Basically, they are effectively killers that create structural strength for the pavement that you would walk on. But then underneath, they create uncompacted space for soil to be uncompacted, and it doesn't have to be structural cell or structural soil, which tends to be really hard for roots to manage. 
And then what you can do is you can install these structural cells, put the tree in the middle, and then you can put a bunch of pavers on top of that. And the public never knows the difference between that and what otherwise would be under a foot. They create a lot of space for some of that urban complexity, like broadband, sewers, electrical, et cetera. But what they really do is create tons of soil volume for those trees. And so we've been working on installing one of the first, one of the first structural cell demonstration projects in Denver. There's currently one in place at a building that was recently built a few years back. The 16th Street Mall, if folks ever visit Denver, is kind of a you know, a pride and joy once and is being revitalized. They're putting in new trees. And because previous trees had reached their full maturity at about 30 years because of the soil volume, they're putting in structural cells right now. And the concept is that we're trying to use this demonstration project very similarly like the rain gardens to help us see that these are viable solutions to create more soil volume downtown Denver. They will help those trees grow faster, grow bigger, grow healthier. We're going to be doing monitoring on those trees. In the process, my hope is that in five to 10 years, structural cells and including them in tree pit design are simply how you build and put trees in, in every new and significant redevelopment in downtown Denver. That's the hope in this pilot project and this innovation is that we're able to accelerate the adoption of this through investment and ultimately make it, we have many more trees in downtown Denver that are providing function, not just for the humans and shade on the ground, especially in a hotter future, but are ultimately supporting pollinators, resident birds, other wildlife that depends on that, insects, et cetera. So that's at least, uh, again, a little bit of a glimpse into how the Nature Conservancy is trying to get involved, how we're trying to lean into when we find those folks who are innovative in those agencies, how can we help them? How can we help them really do incredible work? Because they are the champions that we need and they are what is going to create that groundswell so that our cities really are vibrant, thriving places. What strikes me as a business person, as well as a conservationist, but mainly business, is that this is got to be one of the most major growth sectors on the planet today. Because if you think about retrofitting all of the urban environments on this planet with just some of the things that you talked about today, th that's a that's a really big deal. It's a very long-term kind of thing that it didn't we didn't build all this stuff overnight and it's not going to be rebuilt <laughs> overnight either. If somebody's thinking about, okay, this sounds really exciting. What are some of the job titles you're seeing nowadays that we might not have seen previously, or they've been altered to include more indication of this kind of thinking than the traditional old school stuff? What are people going to be doing in this space? I imagine because it's urban, it's not like a wildlife biologist working in Yellowstone that's getting 50000 a year, if that, uh, and has had to fight tooth and claw to get that position because everybody wants it. It seems like in the urban environment with the money that would be flowing around for these kinds of projects, there would be some fairly good paying jobs out there. I think you're hitting the nail on the head when noting that this is a growing space and it's a space of growth in a really, I think, varied and systemic kind of way. I was at a, a little thing that was put together by, some, by a construction supply company. 
recently, and they had some contractors out, et cetera. And they were, this was pulled together by the partner I noted earlier, Downtown Denver Partnership. And they were demonstrating two technologies, right? So one was the structural cell that we were just talking about. The other was demonstrating the permeable pavers and how this company provides not just the aggregate, the aggregate, but also the resin to make porous grout between pavers and how they create porous bedding material and how they can create porous pavers at the top that you can walk on. All of it culminates in this moment where they pour water on it and it goes right through. And that's one of those moments where I think for a lot of folks often in that industry, there was probably a time where you didn't get to do that kind of demonstration to a bunch of folks at a business improvement district downtown and be able to connect it so deeply to all of these other things that people care so much about, especially people living in places like Denver, where they come to live in a place like outdoor with outdoor recreation, et cetera. And that was just a moment where it was like, man, all of a sudden I'm pumped about thinking about aggregate and resin, right? Like when did I think I was going to be doing that? <laughs> and what I think the, the takeaway there is that those folks, right, in that sales role or in that provider, they certainly don't have it in their title, but all of a sudden they get to have inspiration because it's ultimately connected to this broader suite of how do we solve some of these big environmental challenges in complex spaces. They get brought in because you have to bring everybody in. And yeah, I think that's an example. And then when it comes to titles, I mean, there, there are more opportunities across the kind of broad environmental space, especially city space now that include words like sustainability, resiliency. So for example, in Denver, we're very lucky that the residents of Denver uh, in 2020 and in 2018 passed two ballot measures that were pretty significant, both created significant, consistent, and sustained funding for our Office of Climate Action, Sustainability, and Resiliency, and then also our Parks and Recreation Department. Both of those ballot measures will create about as of last year, about $50 million a year. And so that means that an office of climate action, sustainability, and resiliency, which previously was staffed by about two people, now all of a sudden they have a $50 million budget annually. And that means that their, their staff is at least 25 to 30 people. So that's an order of magnitude larger because the because some folks put for that ballot measure in front of the citizens of Denver and honored what for many people was something that they cared about and just never had the opportunity to support at the ballot box. PNC was supportive of both, led one of those campaigns. But I think from a career perspective, there is more than ever opportunity to do jobs that support directly our collective resilience uh, habitat protection, connectivity, and in ways that might not always be wholly apparent at first, but you can go work at a construction supply company and do some of the coolest projects in the world or supply some of the coolest projects in the world and really be a champion for using these new innovative technologies in ways that support our natural systems locally and ultimately support our global ecological and function. So I think you're absolutely right that more than ever, there are opportunities for folks 
not just directly how they can engage in the space, but also how they can bring it into, I think, careers that might not have always had that, that bent. Yeah. Wow. It's really exciting when, when I hear you talking about this stuff, just being an urban rewilding consultant and starting an agency and just, there's going to be so many people out there, city planners looking for people who know what to even do to begin with, like to teach city governments and people who are in charge planners, all the possibilities of how this city could be remade. Because it would be so exciting to talk about projects like this that are really making an effect on the ground big time for our unbuilt environments. Now I'm starting to understand this is directly related to how people even understand if you're city and you grow up and you maybe go to a national park once or twice in your life, but you're primarily always in an urban environment. And that urban environment is subconsciously telling you nature doesn't matter. Everything should be concrete. Everything should be hot. And you should melt in the summer and freeze in the winter. And that's just the way things ought to be. People aren't getting a really good signal of how important nature is in that environment where they spend most of their time. And then they start seeing these projects that you're doing and that you're talking about showing up in these cities. I think that's sending a message. I imagine that picture that's sending a message to those folks that, hey, we're a part of the natural environment. Even if we're in an urban setting, it matters. And look at all these weird new things that are happening. And then they start asking questions. This is how I imagine it playing out. Is that anywhere close to reality? I love that picture that you paint, Jack. And I think that's, I think that is so core to the opportunity that's in front of us, right? Denver's only been around for 150-ish years, right? So this is a significantly altered environment. And I think, again, that that kind of trap of thinking about, okay, this is just how a city looks and this is what a city is. I think it's easy to fall into. And I think you're nailing it that we have a responsibility to push and demonstrate otherwise because access to nature is a human right. You, we have built up, evolved and grown up as a species that is connected to nature. And the, the body of science is unequivocal what the value is for human health, well-being, mental health, the gamut, like the full gamut, access to nature is a human right. And so we have an onus as anybody who is in this space to be identifying where people don't have access to nature or where there have been past environmental injustices that need to be addressed and how we don't exacerbate those moving forward. And I, I think that's 100% right. That, that is where we get to some of that groundswell. And I do think there, there are many opportunities where because nature is so, can be so broadly defined and the benefits of nature can be woven through so much of our urban existence, I think one of the things that as somebody who does not have an environmental engineering or civil engineering degree, nor do I have a biology degree, right? I'm very much a generalist. I, that is, I think, the person I am. And I think that's where some of my strengths are. And I think it took me a little while to feel comfortable, especially being in a water utility or now in, a, in an organization that prides itself on being science-based, that we need all kinds of skills and strengths and trades. And there is a huge role in the environmental space for generalists. So people who are good at understanding science to the degree that you need to affect decision-making, folks who are able to figure out how to put something in front of decision-makers to make it compelling, 
folks are able to problem solve and figure out where the right levers are to pull to uh, make transformative change. Folks are able to bring teams together and collaborate and communicate. Those are really critical roles and functions. And so I think what that paints to me is that in trying to address this, we need all kinds of different skills and that you don't have to be a scientist, right? You don't have to be, some of those things can feel daunting, right? Because I think some of those are very intellectually demanding or can have, everybody's had different experiences, I think, in grade school. And I think have been told growing up that, you know, that nature doesn't belong here, or maybe you're not good at something, but we need all of it to come together to address these. And I think the real upside there is that the natural systems and better integration of natural systems really do create moments of inspiration in places that I think can be and should be places of inspiration. And I think that cities often are creative hubs, they're economic hubs. Why can't they be hubs where people experience nature in a novel way where they might not be able to otherwise? I think you really nailed it on integrating nature and how that starts to break down some of those systems that feel static, feel in opposition, I think, inherently to our humanness and our humanity and ultimately help us connect and find meaning in places where previously we might not have thought viable. Chris is a wilderness freak and somebody who's only ever usually thinking about my next trip out as far away from people and nature and social media as I can possibly get. I had no idea I would end up being this excited about our talk today. It was a surprise to me and a delightful surprise to me because all the stuff I love out there counts on what we're doing and what you talked about today. As I've learned more from people like you over the years, uh, there have been fewer and fewer instances where there's just, well, that's just an urban issue or that's just a rural issue. They're so intertwined. And I thank you so much for taking the time today for shedding more light on this topic. Thank you so much, Jack. And I, I really appreciated our conversation and learning from you too. Thanks again for having me on. It was such a pleasure and joy. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.